At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This winter, we're taking a fresh look at a familiar story through our series, Jonah, at odds with God. Tune in now as we face the same choice Jonah did, perceive God's mission or to resent it. We're in the book of Jonah uh, this following month. We're going to spend five Sundays here. Nathan kicked us off last Sunday in that, uh, in that great book. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to keep going through this story. I hesitate to say we're going to dive in, no pun intended, but I have a few of these that I'll sparingly use uh, throughout the course of our series. But if you would open up your Bible to Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to read this chapter for us. If you'd stand with me, let me read it. The words will be on the screen, and then I'll pray, okay? Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a, a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What of, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous, and he said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace today. Thank you that you've spoken, that your word shows us your relentless pursuit of even those who rebel and run and push hard against you. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and, and faith to respond to you with humble, submissive faith. 
Work in us now, Spirit, we ask by your grace. Glorify Christ. Help us follow you in all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Could you be delusional? Not about the lights going off and on, but, but is, there a, is there a sense in which in life you may be delusional? about where you stand, about who you are, about what's going on in your life. Could, could you be seeing things incorrectly? One of the greatest literary devices I find in, in novels and stories is the device of irony. When, when a person in a story thinks they see things one way and perceives reality about them in one sense, and really the reality is something completely different, and that character doesn't have a clue of the difference that's going on in their lives. I love that. It's a great way to tell a story. And I love that because the storyteller of the book of Jonah here, maybe Jonah himself, if he's making a confession about his own heart, he, he leans into this sense of irony about his own delusion. The device is used to powerful effect in the story of Don Quixote. Uh, Don Quixote is a Spanish tale by Cervantes. He was a gaunt, middle-aged man who, who he read too many books about chivalrous knights and he determined, Quixote determined that he was going to be a chivalrous knight himself. The world didn't have enough of them. And so he was going to ride his trusty noble steed all around the countryside of Spain. He was going to fight giants and, and restore nobility and win the heart of the beautiful, wonderful princess. And it was all a delusion. Quixote's noble, trusty steed was nothing more than a tired old horse who belonged in a barn. His desired, lovely princess was nothing more than a figment of his imagination. And even the giants that he was going to fight, they were no more than windmills. He had just utterly seen reality in the wrong way. In fact, we get our English expression tilting at windmills from Quixote's story. Let me just give you a little taste of, of what it was like for Quixote reading from, uh, from this story. Just then they came into sight of 30 or 40 windmills that rose from the plain. And no sooner did Don Quixote see them than he said to his squire, Fortune is guiding our affairs better than we ourselves could have wished. Do you see over yonder, friend Sancho, 30 or 40 hulking giants? I intend to do battle with them and slay them. With their spoils we shall begin to be rich, for this is a righteous war. And the removal of so foul a brood from off the face of the earth is a service God will bless. And Sancho replies, what giants? Over there, see them, replied Quixote, with their long arms, some of them have arms, well, nigh two leagues in length. And Sancho said, take care, sir. Those over there are not giants, but windmills. Those things that seem to be their arms are sails which, when they are whirled abound by the wind, turn the millstone. Quixote's problem is that he was delusional. He saw things in his life one way, when the reality was they were very, very different. And I wonder if that could be your condition as well this morning. You would perceive yourself and you would perceive your spiritual reality in one sense, and yet the truth of it is very, very far different from that sense. Maybe you would say to me or to others this morning that you know God, that you fear God, that you love God, that, that God is number one in your life, but I wonder if you're delusional. I wonder if you see things incorrectly and you don't really know your own spiritual condition. 
where you think there are giants in the land that you should fight spiritually, they're really just windmills that you shouldn't tilt against at all. The big question is, do you really fear the Lord? Jonah's story is so helpful for us because his story acts as a mirror. As we, as we hear the story of Jonah, at least the first act of Jonah this morning, we have the Lord holding up a mirror to our lives this morning. And, and through the characters here in this story, there's really three characters, Jonah, the sailors, and God. Through these characters, we're called to examine and look at our own life. Colin Smith puts it this way. He says, Jonah is about the disturbing possibility that having pledged our life to God, we could end up spending much of that life avoiding the God we set out to serve. Some people teach us by their example. Jonah teaches us by his weakness. By confessing his own failures, Jonah holds up a mirror for us to see the struggles and enigmas of our Christian lives. And it's to that mirror that I want us to look and ask ourselves the question, are we delusional? Do we say we fear God, but is that really true? Do you fear God? Here's the big idea, the sermon and the sentence for us to see. To say that we fear God really means this, that reverent fear is a healthy part of submissive faith. That if we say we believe and trust God, there's a real and reverent fear that comes out of our lives. So I want to walk us through Jonah's story this morning again and I want to ask you to think through this question with me. Who is it in the story that truly fears the Lord? Who is it here that, that actually fears God? And, and as we walk through the story, I want to pull out or, or develop for us what these aspects, what these attributes of fearing the Lord truly look like from these characters. So you're looking here, pay attention, and we're going to answer the question, who is it that fears the Lord in this story? Some of you may already have figured it out or already think you know who it is, but I want us to see clearly what their, what their actions and what their lives are that reveal whether they are or they are not fearing the Lord. So let's dive into the story together and let's see what happens with Jonah. Let me give you the first attribute of someone who truly fears the Lord. Someone who truly fears the Lord is someone who seeks God with their questions. When life doesn't make sense, when it, when it doesn't equate in our minds, regardless of what it is, we go to God with our, with our questions. Let's, let's look here. We have in the setup of the story, and Nathan did just a great job last week of, of pointing us to the reality of Jonah's defiance of God. But as we have in the beginning of the story, we meet Jonah. Here he is, the son of Amittai. He's a prophet. Prophets are, are people that have been given the word of God, and they've been sent to an audience. They've been sent to a people by God to communicate that word of God so that they would hear the word of God and they would respond. That's Jonah's job, his mission. Hear from God, communicate God's word to the people that Jonah is sent to. And prophets throughout the scriptures were sent to both the Hebrew people and to Gentile nations as well. Jonah here gets a hard assignment. God comes to him, the word of the Lord comes to him and says, Arise, get up, Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, this presents a problem for Jonah in several layers right out of the gate. First of all, Jonah is called to go to Nineveh. And we might think, well, what's so bad about that? God calls it a great city except for the fact that the Hebrew people saw the people of Nineveh and the Assyrian people as a whole as the, their greatest enemies. The Ninevites and the Assyrians were not friendly people. They were the kind of people that attacked, drug off, scattered, raped, killed, pillaged, all of that, the surrounding nations around them. The Ninevites were especially aggressive and violent, so much so that the Jews hated and feared them. 
And now, now think about that. God is telling Jonah, go to the people that you hate the most. Go to the place that you see as the biggest evil, the deepest wickedness, and go there. Oh, and you're going to communicate my word to them. Well, that presents another conundrum for Jonah, mainly because he's going to have to say something very hard. In fact, God gives him the message, call out against it. So Jonah, go and preach against these people. Tell them how bad they are. Tell them their wickedness. Tell them God's judgment is going to fall down on them. Now, on my most like pessimistic, cynical days, I read this and I go, man, I'd like to do that one day. I'd like to walk into to the church family and just tell you guys what God really thinks about you sometimes. Because it's not pretty and that's not, it's not good all the time. But I'm called to extend and share grace. So you might think Jonah's like got a great message here. Like, yes, he can finally tell these evil, wicked people, God's done with you. He's going to squash you under his foot. Fire's coming. Hooray! It's going to destroy you. But that's a problem for Jonah because like any messenger who would have to share bad news, you don't want to get killed as the messenger, right? And Jonah knows if I go in there and tell him God's going to blast you with fire, you're going to kill me with fire. You're going to skin me and nail me to the wall. Like, so... Jonah's not up for going and dying himself in Nineveh with his fiercest enemies. But that's not the only problem that Jonah has. Jonah knows that if he goes there and he communicates the word of God, because God's word is living and powerful and it's grace, if he communicates that to them, there's the chance that the Ninevites will hear that word and they'll do the last thing that Jonah wants them to do. They'll repent. They'll humble themselves. They'll say, yes, God is the living God. We've been living in defiance of him. And they'll humble themselves. And they'll make things right. And then the problem is huge for Jonah because now he's in a relationship where he needs to love his enemies. And that God is actually for his enemies. Jonah doesn't want that either. So Jonah, in defiance to God's word, in defiance to his calling, he decides he's going to do the very opposite of all of this. Verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now help me out here just for a moment. You can interact with me in just this way. Where is Jonah going? Tarshish, right? He said it there three times. Yeah, the Hebrew writer here just says it again and again and again, so to emphasize, to bold print, to italicize and underline, saying Jonah is going to Tarshish. Tarshish in the ancient world probably was as far west as you could go from the city of Jerusalem by sea. Maybe somewhere in modern-day Spain, but it is a ways. Nineveh is to the east and north. So God says, hey, go east and north to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, no, I'm going to Tarshish, west, far away, off the edge of the earth if I can. Like, I don't want to be anywhere near Nineveh. He runs and he flees. And in fact, the verse 3 here tells us he went from the presence of the Lord. He says it twice. The emphasis is there. Where is Jonah going? To Tarshish. Why is he going there? To get away from God. He doesn't want anything to do with God and God's word and calling in his life. He is running fast. And you might think, well, okay, Jonah's going to go. He's going to get away. But I, love, I love the third character in the story here. Actually, he's the second character in the story so far. The first, really, the Lord. God shows up. Now, God's given Jonah a message to go to Nineveh. Jonah's not doing that. And we get to verse 4. God does something else. 
Scripture says that God hurled a great wind upon the sea. God is absolutely in control, powerfully sovereign. Nothing is outside of his grip. He holds even nature in his hands. And so he hurled, he cast a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. There's Jonah in the boat with these professional sailors taking their cargo across to Tarshish, and God radically shows up with this powerful storm that's just casting the boat up and down the waves to the degree in which you might see it buckle and break and sink down to the depths. If you've ever watched any of those ocean stories or any of those uh, great ice fishing shows, I, I forget the name of them, but, but you, you've seen sometimes when they're in the Arctic Sea and the boats are just up and down like a roller coaster. This ship is facing it all, and it's about to break up. And here we meet another set of characters. The sailors, the mariners, there in verse 5. The scripture here tells us that they were afraid. And here's a first clue for us about who actually fears the Lord. The writer of Jonah tells us the mariners were afraid. They're afraid of this storm. And so what do they do? They begin to cry out to their gods. Now, we have to look at this and think and see that what they're doing there isn't outside of what normal pagan people would do. These mariners are, are not Jewish people. They don't worship Yahweh, the one true living God. Uh, they don't even know him. They're just doing what, what sailors in a storm who, who have multiple gods and various viewpoints and worldviews, they're doing what they would naturally do. They cry out to the heavens. They don't have the right God, but they're picking any God that they can, and they're crying out to him saying, help. Help, help. They, they go and they take the cargo in the boat and they toss it overboard. They're doing everything they can to save the ship and to make sure it doesn't go down. They're losing all their profit and income from this voyage just to maintain their lives. They're working hard, calling to heaven, doing their part. And where's Jonah? He's in the bottom of the boat. He's in the belly of the boat, right down in the inner part of the ship, sleeping fast asleep. No fear at all, right? Jonah has no fear at all, and yet the sailors are the ones with great fear. So here's what happens. The captain comes down in the center of the ship. He finds Jonah asleep. He grabs him by the shoulder. He's like, what do you mean, you sleeper? Like, how can you sleep in this? Why are you sleeping in this? We're all about to die, and here you are having the best nap of your life. What is wrong with you? He says, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. He, he, he grabs Jonah, shakes him. He says, look around. Everybody else is calling out to their gods. What about you? Are you going to invoke the heavens as well? Are you going to cry out to your God and be a part of this team with us as well? Or do you actually care? Now, here we get the sense. Because of silence, Jonah doesn't do anything. He doesn't pray. He doesn't seek God. He doesn't call out to him. Jonah is dead set in his defiance against the living God. He will have nothing to do with him. The storm is raging. The sailors don't know why the storm is raging. Jonah knows why. God's hand, his furious judgmental hand is upon Jonah and the ship at this moment. He's trying to win back Jonah to repentance and Jonah won't have it at all. So they've got to figure out who's responsible here. In verse 7, all the sailors get together and they say, come, let us cast lots. A cast lots is something similar to maybe what we would say like drawing straws. You know, they've got different length straws. Everybody gets one. You pull it out. Whoever has the short straw is the guilty party. That's how it's working here in this story. 
So they, they get their straws. And, and don't think of this as just random superstition here. See the fact that this is actually how the ancients perceived and pursued the will of the gods, even God himself. Uh, scripture validates casting of lots. Solomon says this in Proverbs chapter 16, 33. He says, the law is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God is sovereign over these things. God is not out of control one bit, fully in control, directing everything. So they draw straws. Jonah shows up with a short straw, and they're like pointing the finger at him and saying, what is going on with you? Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Like, why is this storm here? Because the names, the, the straws point to you. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And what people are you? What's really going on? Now here, we can just, let me just pause the story right here. Let's just ask the question. Who fears God? We, we already have some clues, right? The scripture has told us the sailors are afraid. Jonah doesn't seem to have any fear at all. He's running to Tarshish. He gets down in the center of the ship. He's taking a power nap to beat all power naps. Even he won't even pray and seek God. You tell me, who fears the Lord? Jonah is so settled in his defiance that he's entirely ignorant of how his sin is harming and damaging others around him. He won't listen to God. He won't listen to counsel. He won't listen to crisis. Nothing is going to wake up Jonah. He doesn't fear God, period. The interesting thing about this passage is the writer of it gives us a a trajectory to show us that Jonah doesn't believe or fear God. Notice where Jonah's always, what direction is Jonah always heading in? Always down, right? He goes, in verse 3, he goes down to Joppa. And he finds a ship. He, went, he paid the fare and went down into the ship. Even a little bit later, he had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. These aren't just random terms here. The writer's wanting us to see Jonah going down, 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 down. As far away, as deep in as he can get away from the presence of the Lord. What's the trajectory of the sailors? It's always up. Up, up, up to the Lord, crying out to him, seeking his divine wisdom and help. Help identified, discerning who's at fault here. What's the reason? The humble hearts of the sailors are running up to the Lord. I like the way that Paul David Tripp in his book, Awe, asks this question. He puts it this way. He says, if someone asks you what the two most important questions you could ask were, what would you answer? If you're God's child, there may be no more important questions than these two. What in the world is God doing right here, right now? And how in the world should I respond to it? You see, people who have humble faith, who fear the Lord, they take their questions to God. I love the fact that faith is an act of asking. It's an act of seeking. And it's an act of seeking God himself. Jonah has no seeking, no asking, nothing but defiance. Friends, you may be confused about where you're at in life right now. You may be confused about your circumstances or your situations. You you may not know even what the next steps are. Don't ever get to a point where you're done with asking God for help. You're done with asking him questions. That's what the fear of the Lord actually looks like. They say, God, I don't know. I don't get it. I don't have a plan laid out. I'm clueless here. Help. If anything, our hands should constantly be lifted up and raised to the Lord and saying, God, provide. I'm seeking you. 
True fear of the Lord pushes and runs towards God, not shuts down, defies, and walks away from Him and tries to run from Him. People who seek the Lord with their questions display the fear of the Lord. He's safe. You can run to Him. Here he's pursuing Jonah deeply, radically, with judgment to wake him up so that Jonah will come to his senses and come back to God. And that may not be you today. You may not feel the, the strong sense of God's judgment against you, or maybe you do. But if you do, nonetheless, you should come to him. Seek him. Go to him. That's what the fear of the Lord truly looks like. Another attribute of the fear of the Lord, let's keep moving on with the story, is that those who fear the Lord call out to God in their struggle. It's not just that we seek God, that we move in a direction towards him, that we're, we're headed up, but that we, in the midst of our crisis and our storm and in our struggle, we, we call out to him for help. This is what happens in the story. So let's keep going. Verse 9. They're, they're having this inquisition about Jonah. Who are you? Where are you from? What people of you? What's your job? Like, why is this all going on? Because this storm is happening because of you, dude. What's your problem? Jonah answers them. Listen to Jonah's answer and just see how delusional he is. I'm giving it away. Listen to what he says. He says, I am a Hebrew. So just by saying I'm a Hebrew, he's saying I belong to God. I'm, I'm, I'm one of God's people. I belong to him. And then he says, I fear the Lord. Right? <laughs> <laughs> really? Okay, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This is the most ironic statement in the entire chapter to me. Hi, I belong to God's people. I fear God, the God who made everything, and the ocean that I'm running from God currently in. Right? Like, this guy's an idiot. You know, he's just not smart at all. Kids, you can't use that word at home. <laughs> That's what's going on. He just, he, he's so He's so unable to see himself clearly. Jonah is the epitome of a person who knows doctrine. He knows truth, right? He's saying the right things. I'm a Hebrew. I fear God. I fear the Lord. He uses God's covenantal name, Yahweh. I fear him, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He's got Genesis 1 down, and he's deluded. He knows doctrine, he knows truth, but he hasn't applied it to his heart. He hasn't obeyed these truths in his heart. He's about to learn that the creator of the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them will not let his man go. God's going to keep pursuing him. Friends, you can have a lot of right and good doctrine and truth in your head, and you can still be in complete rebellion against the Lord, against the living God. This is where, this is where the irony is. Because I fear God, really, but I'm running. I'm running to the very place I don't think God can get me except that he made it. Baffling. If I was translating this passage here, verse 10, we get another clue of who fears God. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. So now the writer tells us one more time, who really fears? Oh, it's the sailors. They were exceedingly afraid. They're like, their eyes are wide open. Like, can you believe this dude? He is, he is completely out to lunch. They might, they might look at him and say, you moron, you're trying to get away from the God who made everything? What's wrong with you? So they're trying now to figure it out. What do we do? What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. That's how brash Jonah's defiance is. Yeah, I'm, I'm running from God. I want nothing to do with him, nothing with his word. He just tells them outright. That's what he's doing. They see it. So they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? 
the seas were growing more and more and more hostile. So Jonah's plan here is, it's amazing. He says, pick me up, throw me into the sea, the sea will quiet down. I know it's because of me, like this is all my fault. Now, now sometimes we might read this and go, oh, look, here's, here's Jonah's nobility. He sees the sailors and their plight and peril. He knows it's not their fault, it's his fault. And so he's like making himself a sacrifice. Oh yeah, just throw me into the ocean. You guys will be saved. I'll be the hero. That is not Jonah's heart at all. Jonah is not the hero in this story. He is a doofus with a capital D. What he is saying here, he's just like, I I don't care. I don't want God to have anything to do with me. I would rather die than what do what God says. So just pitch me in the ocean so I can drown and die. I can go to the bottom of the sea and God won't even get me there. And maybe this will clear up for you guys. That's how defiant he is. He has no sense of trying to come back to the Lord. No sense of repentance. No sense of fear of the Lord. No sense of humility. But the sailors do. Right? They fear the Lord. It's a terrible thing to take someone's life. And they know that. They're not going to be ready to be part of that very quickly. So it says in verse 13 that the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. They, literally, the Hebrew is they dug their oars in. They pushed as hard as they could to get back to safety and to life. But it wouldn't work. So they get to the point where they, they have to make a decision. Verse 14 Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Notice here a powerful conversion. These sailors earlier had been crying out to any God that they could think of. They opened up the dictionary of God's names and started rifling through and like, did you offend the sea God? Did you offend the air God? Did you offend the temple God? Like, which God did you offend? And they start crying out to all these gods. But here now, in the fear of the Lord, they cried out to the Lord. They used his name, his covenantal name, Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Yahweh, have done as has pleased you. There they are humbly giving themselves to the Lord. They are crying out directly to God Almighty himself for help, for provision, for him to settle this. They fear the Lord. They're so concerned that Tossing Jonah into the sea will be on their hands, that they commit Jonah to God and say, God, he's in your hands now. Like, we, we don't want to be guilty of any bloodshed here. We don't want to be guilty of this man's life. So he's yours, Lord. We're just, we're just trying to follow you. Here it is. This humble fearing of the Lord, they cry out to God in their struggles. Is that what fear of the Lord looks like in your life? where there are those struggles, where, there, where there's crisis, where there's great storms? Are you raising up your hand and saying, God, help? Or are you looking to the wisdom of our culture, the wisdom of this world, looking to your own devices and your own power? You're trying to dig in your own oars into the sea to move forward in the storm? Are you just sitting there, arms crossed, defiantly saying, I'd rather die than listen to God? I'd rather die than do what he calls me to. True and humble fear of the Lord moves towards him, sees him, and recognizes his great power and glory and worth in all of life. Says, Lord, 
but we're just going to trust ourselves to you. That's what fear of the Lord looks like. One last thing that we see about the fear of the Lord here is that those who fear the Lord are people who respond to God in submissive worship. It's a movement of worshiping ourselves to worshiping the Lord. The story here from the rest kind of focuses on the sailors. Jonah kind of becomes someone in the background. They've done everything they can to save Jonah's life and their own. They're not committed to killing him, but they entrust God to him. And yet God is going to get his man. He's gonna, his grace is just relentless in his pursuit. Surely his mercy and goodness will follow me all the days of my life. And that's God going for his boy, Jonah. Their prayer is a prayer of worship and reverence to the Lord in verse 14. This isn't some just throwaway prayer, just saying like we wash our hands, but it's humbly saying to God, Lord, don't hold us guilty, but work within us. They commit Jonah to God and to the sea, and they toss him overboard. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. Another note of irony here. God hurls a storm, the sailors hurl Jonah. There it is. And the sea ceased from its raging. And then notice again, the writer here is driving home the point. Who fears God? The sailors feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And they made vows. They had seen the great might and power, the mighty strong arm of Yahweh, and they believed him. They feared him. He's no little deity just to be trifled with or just to, to come to when it's convenient for us. He is the Lord of heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, the creator, almighty God, and they rightly recognized he is great and they are small, and they feared him. And in their fear, they worshiped, offered a sacrifice, made vows, entrusted themselves, committed themselves to the Lord. And where's Jonah? Not having any part of it. No humility, no repentance, no entrusting himself to the Lord, just saying, hey, great, I'm gonna go to the bottom of the ocean instead of doing what God has called me to do. He's resigned to his fate. Throw me overboard. The sailors are worshiping. Is this how you look to the Lord and respond to him? Does, does being in the presence of God, standing under the reality of the one true and living God, does it produce a true and submissive worship in your life? Does it produce a true fear of the Lord? Do the judgments of God resign you to your own fate? Well, if the hammer's gonna drop, it might as well drop. Or do the judgments of God spur you on to humble yourself and to worship him alone? Friends, I'll come back to the sermon in a sentence. It's that reverent fear is a healthy part of submissive faith. We should be people who fear the Lord in humility, but not in terror. Because all of God's actions towards Jonah, towards these sailors, is to pursue them in his love. And we might think that coming, and maybe you've heard the story of Jonah before, you know what's next. Uh, spoiler alert, big fish, swallowed up, three days. We'll get to that next week. You might know that story and go, wow, Jonah, great guy. He is not the hero of this story. 
He's the villain, actually. He's the bad guy. He is not the dude that we should emulate or follow. And the sailors aren't the heroes either. They give us a pattern to help us see how we are to fear the Lord and to have true faith. But the hero of this story is the Lord himself. God is the one who acts to never give up on his people. God is relentless in his pursuit of those he loves. He never gives up. He purposes one thing and he accomplishes it. He sees it through. So he purposed to show grace to Nineveh by sending them a prophet. He purposed to use Jonah to spread his name to pagan nations. He purposed, God purposed to send a storm to bring Jonah to repentance and humility. God purposed to put a prophet in a pagan's boat with a raging storm around so that these sailors would hear and see the mighty works of God and that they would believe him themselves. God purposed to send his son, the Lord Jesus, to live the sinless life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserve as a sacrifice, and to be raised to life again as the hope of life for all who will trust and fear him. It is God's relentless pursuit of us in love. He purposes it and he accomplishes it. So what does that mean for us? If we see God who keeps chasing us down in love, we should fear him. We should love him. We should trust him with submissive, humble faith. And so my, my question this morning, friends, is are you delusional? Do you say you fear God, you trust him, but there's no, there's no evidence of that in your life? Or do you say, yes, I do fear the Lord, and it shows, yourself, it shows itself out in seeking him. It shows itself out in calling out to him in crisis and hardship. It shows itself out in worshiping the Lord, trusting yourself to him in all things. Are you delusional? Do you fear the Lord? Let it be seen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.